Thank you. Thank you for being good in our lives. Thank you for being kind to us. Thank you for your love, Jesus, and your presence with us. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, happy Thanksgiving again. Like Jonathan mentioned, uh, did anyone eat a meal this week for Thanksgiving? There we go. Awesome. Second service, the, the crowd participation was really weak. Uh, first service was okay, so I'm expecting you guys to level it up here. But um, this weekend, my uh, wife and I, Kayla, we got to go visit my family in Pennsylvania and just have a, a, a good time with our nephews and niece and, and uh, have a lot of fun. My nephew, Jonathan, and I, shout out Jonathan if you're watching this, uh, we, I'm kind of known as the mischievous uncle. And so Jonathan and I, uh, we grabbed some Nerf guns, and we would lure people in and, and shoot them with the Nerf guns when they came by. And then we had some duels, Jonathan and I did. It was a blast. We had a lot of fun uh, with our Nerf battles. And our family also has this other tradition that many of you may have as well, where uh, we, at the, the Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, we went around and shared, everyone shared something that we're thankful for. And so during that time, like uh, people might say things like, I'm thankful for my family. Uh, this is a picture of my family here. Actually, last year's picture, we get one every year, but I, I didn't get to change it to this year's picture yet. Super sweet. And then we had a, uh, I'm, th I'm, I'm thankful for my cat, Oreo. Love him. I don't like to choose favorites necessarily, but he's probably one of my favorites in my family. <laughs> I think Caitlin beats him, but you know, I love, I love him. Uh, maybe uh, you're thankful for the food that you're about to eat, or you might say, I'm thankful for my job. Maybe. <laughs> I'm thankful for my job here at OCC. It's great to work here. Uh, or you might say that you're thankful that Thanksgiving's over and Christmas is right around the corner. Anybody? At least a couple of you. Yeah. I, and some of you just think that's wrong. Jesse, what's wrong with you? Um, Kayla and I this year, we got to share something that we're grateful for, and it's that we actually are pregnant. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, thank you so much. So it's been um, years, and we've been uncertain about whether we'd ever get pregnant. We're pursuing adoption, and God answered our prayers, so we're, uh, we're grateful for the little one on its way. But what if, you know, for you, as your family members are all gushing with gratitude, do you feel empty? Maybe you lost your job recently, or you feel like a failure as a parent or a spouse. You feel like you can't keep it all together. Maybe finances are tight, or you're facing battles that no one really knows about. And as the baton is figuratively passed to you to share your deepest gratitude, you just want to shout like, what, what on earth would I be grateful for right now? You expect me to be grateful? Come on. I think many of us have felt this tension in one way or another in life. And maybe you, you feel it sometimes on a Sunday. You come to church. Uh, we put on our smiling faces. We, we talk about things like gratitude. And inside, you have a battle that's, that's, uh, that you're fighting, that you're going through. And perhaps the dissonance even grows when you read scriptures like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, that says, give thanks in all circumstances, 
For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, really? Like this is God's will for me? Like how can I be grateful in the pain that I'm going through? How does that even work? Well, I want to explore this tension a bit this morning because I'm right there with you. When I've gone through seasons of pain, what does thankfulness really look like? Well, this scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, is interesting. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica. That is the book of Thessalonians. And he wrote this letter around 51 AD. Earlier in the letter, Paul mentions something that happened in life. He says, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. So his readers know what he's talking about. We don't necessarily, unless we dig a little deeper. So what happened in Philippi, about a year earlier, around 50 AD, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he travels to the city of Philippi, a Roman colony that is godless. People there do not know Jesus or follow him at all. And so as Paul and his traveling companion Silas are in Philippi, they're walking around the city, and the most bizarre thing happens. This lady, this actually this possessed woman, comes up behind them and starts shouting, these men, they're servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. Like, it's a pretty weird thing for a possessed woman to say. She's almost doing their job for them. Like, hey, these guys are legit. And the interesting thing is that this woman was known locally to predict the future and to be right. Well, Paul and Silas, they're walking. This woman is shouting behind them. And as they're going through town, Paul, like a, a normal person, he gets annoyed. He's like, why is this woman following me? Why is she shouting? So he turns around and he casts the demon out in the name of Jesus Christ. She is miraculously healed and set free. God works this miracle. Well, a little bit of subtext here. The woman was actually a slave to some shrewd business owners. And they used her ability to predict the future to make a lot of money. And so these men were angry. They're ticked because she's no longer possessed. She can't predict the future anymore. Thus, no income. So their, their source of income is gone. And so they are furious. They drag Paul and Silas before the local courts, before the magistrate. They get a crowd riled up. And Paul and Silas are brutally beaten, flogged, and thrown into prison. Like after they performed this miracle. This is what Paul's referring to in Thessalonians when he says, you know what we went through in Philippi. And so Paul, after he went through this uh, brutal situation, you know, how would you or I react in this? We're doing something for God, something good happens, and then got like something like this is the result? God, why would you let this happen to me? Well, they're in prison, beaten, battered, half, uh, half to death, and it's about midnight when they start singing and they start praising God. And as they're singing, as they're praising, God brings this earthquake that literally frees them from jail. And uh, the, the jailer comes to know Jesus. is this crazy situation. You can read it all in Acts chapter 16. I encourage you to do that sometime. Uh, but they're freed, and they go on. And it's the same man who wrote, Give thanks in all circumstances. 
just a year earlier before writing that, was literally practicing what he preached. And the story doesn't stop there. So about 10 years later, we're around 8061 right now, Paul writes another letter. But this time he writes it to the city of Philippi, and specifically a church in Philippi. A church was established. Like God moved there and established a church in Philippi. Paul writes to them, and he says in chapter 4, Rejoice always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. And Paul writes those words while in jail yet again, but this time in a different ungodly city, the city of Rome. So for Paul, giving thanks in all circumstances, rejoicing always, were not just words on a Hobby Lobby decoration or like some holiday tradition. They were a reality that he experienced on a regular basis. And my question is, what does it really mean? Like, what does it really look like for us to rejoice always? How does that happen in our lives? Well, first I want to tell you what it is not. Rejoicing always does not mean that you just become a positive robot you know, the, the, the people in our lives, I think we all have some of them that are just, they never say anything negative ever. Uh, and, e you know, even if they lost their job, they were in a car crash, and their family pet fish just died, they'd be like, uh, praise the Lord, all is good, God has a plan for this. And I'm not saying that, like, if, if that is you, I'm not shaming you. I just, I don't think that this is what Paul had in mind when he said, rejoice always. And here's why. Paul himself was not just happy and positive all the time. In his letter to the church of Galatia, Paul gets fiery and angry. He's infuriated with these Christians who twisted the gospel. In Romans, another letter Paul wrote, Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. The same man who said rejoice always also said, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to mourn, and it's appropriate. It's good for us to lament and be honest and real about our emotions. We also see that throughout the book of Psalms. Paul himself felt some really strong sadness. In first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he wrote these words. He said, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. We despaired of life itself. That's strong language. Pain, mourning, anger, those are all realities that Paul experienced. So if, for Paul, rejoicing always isn't just like, be positive, just be happy all the time, what did he mean? Well, Paul in Philippians, he gives some really great advice throughout the book of Philippians. But in chapter 4, he, he says things like, be gentle because the Lord is near. He, he says to, instead of worry, pray and you'll find peace. He, he talks about disciplining our thought life, like what to think about and what to focus on in our thought life. And he reminds uh, the, the readers that God will be with them. So he says all these awesome things, and I think we could have a mini sermon about any of them. But I want to lean into what I believe is the source of Paul's rejoicing, the source uh, that he pulls from. 
And so Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 10, he said, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, like whether it, for Paul in jail or free. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I have learned the secret to being content. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Whether Paul was in agony, pain, mourning, anger, he lived content because Christ is his strength. Earlier in the book of Philippians, he writes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Everything in Paul's life centers around Jesus. A reality for Paul is this. Jesus is his life. Jesus carries him through everything. He is his source of purpose in everything he does. Jesus is his motivation to wake up in the morning and to work throughout the day. Jesus is the one that gives him strength. Jesus is his life. Well, we're fresh off of Thanksgiving, and I I thought I'd share a little bit of a metaphor to describe this further. So who um, enjoyed their Thanksgiving meal? I think I asked earlier who ate, but anyone, you enjoy it? So one of my favorite things about the Thanksgiving meal in some of you will be on the same page as me. Some of you, maybe not. But I love like taking my mashed potatoes, the corn, the stuffing, the gravy, the turkey, mixing it all together like an animal. And I, <laughs> I love it. Does any other, anybody else with me? Are you mixers? Who thinks that's terrible? Anybody? Ooh, wow, strong opinions. I, I, I personally, I would never mix like sweet with that, like pumpkin pie that stays separate, right? You can't touch the gravy, but you mix all those other juicy, delicious things together, you get heaven. If you've not done it, go home and do it with the leftovers. Your life will be different. It will be changed. So that's my favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal. But usually when we eat, uh, we, we have the main meal, right? Like things like the turkey, corn, mashed potatoes, etc. That's sort of the main meal. Then you also have the side dish or dessert like, like pumpkin pie or cheesecake if you really want to level up. Like at your next Thanksgiving get-together, bring cheesecake or bring me cheesecake at the church. Uh, and you also probably have condiments or seasoning on the side, maybe some salt to, if the flavor's not so great, you know, a, a certain uncle or aunt prepped the food, you need to add some salt. Well, when we sit down to eat, the main meal is our focus. It's the thing that gives us nourishment. It fuels our body. Oh, we could potentially live off of dessert. I don't think it'd be a great life, uh, maybe for a little bit. But the main meal is ultimately what we need to survive. We all have sort of a figurative main meal in life that we go to for nourishment, for satisfaction, for fulfillment. For Paul, the main meal of his life is Jesus. Jesus is Paul's nourishment. He's his bread of life, his living water. Jesus is Paul's fuel. He's the main focus of Paul's life. But the sad reality for many of us 
is that we fall into the trap in the meal of life of making Jesus more of the dessert or the salt. And let me describe what I mean by that. Perhaps in a season, I, I get discouraged. I'm dissatisfied with life. And so I decide, you know, I just need to read some more like self-help books, apply some meditation practices, to get more steps in in the day. Maybe I'll be a little bit happier and not bad things, right? But at a certain point, Sometimes those things become the central thing, the place where I go to to be okay. And then maybe I turn to Jesus afterward to sweeten things up a bit, like I added a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of pumpkin pie to life, uh, but he's not my main thing. Or maybe in another season, I'm feeling like I'm ready to conquer the day. I crush it. I wake up every day motivated to go. I'm destroying it at work. Maybe I wouldn't say it, but I feel like you could write a big old S on my chest for success. You know, just crushing it in life. But then when things start to go sideways, I'm like, God, I need you. Like, I I, I need you to help. Like, Like, Jesus is like our salt. You don't put salt on food when it tastes great. You put salt on food when it's not ideal. And so Jesus is like our salt flavor enhancer, like make things a little bit better when things don't go our way. A lot of us treat Jesus like the dessert or the salt, either a tasty treat or something to to fix the flavor. As a friend recently said to me, a pretty smart, wise friend, said many Christians would rather have Jesus enhance their life than be their life. So what does this have to do with rejoicing? For Paul, Jesus was his life. And this, this for Paul, was the secret to being content in any and every circumstance. You know, the reality is, like Paul, we will go through pain and suffering. God doesn't just take away all suffering from our life, and he doesn't expect us to deny that it's a reality. We go through suffering, but when Jesus is our life, two things fundamentally change. The first is the way that we experience the pain. And the second is the fruit on the other side of the pain. And even as we're going through it. In Corinthians, Paul describes God as the Lord of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. God comforts us. When Jesus is our life, we have a comforter, a supporter, a uh, a, a stable foundation, and he walks with us through the pain. We are not alone. This is the first difference. We experience pain with Jesus alongside us. And although that's a simple reality. It can carry profound effects on the way that we go through pain. Jesus doesn't get rid of the bad. He walks with us. And from that place of Jesus being with us, of Jesus helping us through, a different kind of fruit shows in our lives. Things like contentment, things like peace, another worldly kind of peace that doesn't make sense, Hope, hope for a brighter future, love for those around us, and joy. However, 
our joy becomes fleeting when other things take center stage in our lives. For example, let's say money and stuff in, in a season of my life becomes, whether I'd like to admit it, the place that I find peace and fulfillment. I feel secure because of it. And then the economy takes a turn or I lose my job and my stuff starts to fade away. And when it does, my security cracks, and I'm like, God, I, I'm throwing some salt on it. God, help me through this. But I just grow bitter, angry at God for not fixing it, not taking it away and making it better the way I think it should be. Or maybe family and relationships are where my life starts to revolve around. Not a bad thing. Honestly, a good thing. We love family. However, when it becomes our main thing, and relationships start to get tense. They're not ideal. They're not the way we want them to be. And uh, honestly, because people are people and they're not going to be the way we want them to be. But when we put our, our source of meaning and everything in at our family, then when things don't go right, we're like, God, what are you doing? Like, like why are you letting me go through this? We question. And the type of fruit we experience in these scenarios is, are things like frustration, or anger with God or with other people, hatred, complaining, bitterness. And we attempt to like fix it with a little bit of Jesus. Um, but in uh, the idea then of, of rejoicing always just sounds ludicrous. But when things of this world are our source of joy, in hope, we're left vulnerable to be broken when they fade away. But when Jesus is at the center, the unchanging one, the one who always, it always has been, always will be, and it can be our source of strength, we can lose our jobs and be fine in the arms of Christ. We can have tension in relationships and have peace through Jesus. The, the things, everything in the world could be falling apart. And if we have Jesus, it can be okay. I'm not saying it won't hurt. I'm saying it can be okay because we have Jesus. For Paul, the secret to being able to rejoice and be content in, in all circumstances is to make Jesus your life, your source of strength, your nourishment in the place that you find meaning. A friend of mine who works as a missionary overseas recently shared something with me that he told a, a student that he's discipling. He said to him, Jesus doesn't make your life more meaningful. Jesus becomes your meaning. Uh, we can get caught up pursuing meaning or pursuing joy, but ultimately when we pursue Jesus, those things result. Make Jesus your life and joy will result. Ultimately, here at OCC, we do everything that we do because we want to help people take their next step toward Jesus to grow closer to him. And so if you're at a place where you've not put your faith in Jesus and been baptized, I want to invite you to make Jesus your life, your main meal, your everything, because he invites you and he is good. Or maybe your next step this week, and I encourage anyone to do this, uh, is to read through the book of Philippians and to ask God to mentor you through the Apostle Paul. God, show me, help me grow in this. God, teach me how to make you my life through the words of Paul. Or maybe this week you need to take an honest self-assessment 
and just look honestly at life like, God, what are the things that I tend to actually make the center, make the main thing? And if, if those things crumbled, I would crumble too. Jesus, how do I need to make you the main thing in my life? Or maybe Jesus is your main, your main meal. He is everything to you. And you also are maybe going through a season of pain. I want to encourage you to remember that Jesus is with you. And maybe you need to invite others to mourn with you as you mourn, to walk with you as you go through what you're going through. We all need support. And so uh, this holiday season, as cheesy as it sounds, I want, I, I want to encourage you to make Jesus your main meal and uh, allow Jesus to be your life, your everything. And I, I believe that you'll experience an otherworldly kind of fruit as you go through pain. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to get to the place like the Apostle Paul that we're able to say, for me, to live is Christ. We want you to be our, our everything, Jesus. I pray for each person uh, worshiping today here that if they're going through pain, that you would comfort them, you'd walk with them through it, and that you'd help them find you amidst anything, God. Uh, some of us have bitterness that we've been carrying around for years toward you or toward others, and I ask that you would bring healing on that. God, I ask that you would uh, help us to start to experience this this. Uh, really crazy reality of being able to rejoice in any circumstance, to give thanks at all times. Lord, we want that. We want uh, just joy in your presence, Jesus, because for us to live is Christ. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.